You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to Uncorking Your Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Matthew Necci. Not sketchy, Matthew Necci. Uh, Matthew is a practicing attorney by trade, so he's definitely not sketchy, uh, although that, that's to be determined. Um, and the author of The Road Will Someday Bend. He has a penchant for social media and community building and his daily musings about my beloved Yukon Huskies, the New York Mets, and the greater Hartford area, as well as the Adirondacks, can be found on Twitter at Yukon and Tech. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Matthew. Thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate it. Matthew, everyone gets the same first question from me, which is, uh, where does your story as an author begin? Um, I, you know, I, I've always loved writing and storytelling. So, you know, even as a, a student growing up, I loved history class because I was just fascinated by the stories. American history just completely fascinated me. Um, and then as I got into college, I loved writing. I wrote for the Daily Campus at UConn. So I was... Uh, that was more in the sports genre, <clears throat> excuse me. And then, you know, as an attorney, um, it's probably rare. I think, you know, but in our practice, young attorneys tend to get the written assignments that the older attorneys then review and hand in on their own. You know, I've been practicing almost, uh, I've been in almost 17 years now. I absolutely love writing. So for me, writing trial briefs and appellate briefs has been a great thing because I look at it as persuasive storytelling, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I've always wanted to transition that into actually writing a book or a novel and had this story percolating about uh, my grandfather's life. And uh, like everyone else, you know, 2020 was completely insane and uh, had a little bit more time being at home and writing some thoughts down. And uh, my wife said, you really need to kind of put this in a book. If we're not going to do it now, when are you ever going to have this time at home again? And so, you know, the book, this, and I'll, I'll do the, uh, the, the flash of the book. So <laughs> this, this became my, uh, the road will someday bend will become really became a COVID baby for me. Um, yeah. and I loved every minute of it. So it was, uh, it was a different, different style of writing than I've ever done. But, um, I think people that naturally love to tell stories and write, you just let you have to be writing all the time. And, and so this was just me redirecting energy I've always had. How, how important was your wife's encouragement to kind of you know, getting you off your, your tail and, and, and putting the words on the page? Well, I think, you know, I, I say this for everything um, and hopefully she'll she'll watch or, or listen to this sometime. My wife is my absolute partner in everything. So we, I've been very fortunate. We're high school sweethearts. So we just celebrated our 15 year anniversary. We've been together for 23 years. Um, I think like anything in life that you do, whether it's professionally, personally, if you have a supporting partner, um, unbelievable to, to really, it wasn't just taking the leap, you know, um, as you know, it's, you have a level of vulnerability when you put something out into the world. And so she's a, a middle school English teacher. 
and she she's an avid reader. I mean, you know, I'll read 15 to 20 books in a year. She'll read like 100 books in a year. She mm-hmm. just loves to be reading all the time. So for me, what was important was when I first thought I was going to do this story, I knew I, w- I could start um, and, and I'm a goal oriented person. So I looked at it almost like running a marathon. I think people look at a, a marathon similarly with writing a book as this huge overall project. And I think the sum of the parts freaks people out from starting. And I'm pretty confident that once I just start something, I'm going to see it through where my wife really was supportive was you know, before anyone else in the world saw it, she did. So every time I'd write a chapter, she would be the first person that would read it and give some, you know, third party thoughts about where the story was going. And I kind of made the commitment to her that I knew I was going to finish this book. Um, I wanted her to be brutally honest, so that if she was really interested, I was going to keep showing it to her. And if she wasn't interested, I think I still would have finished, but I'm not sure I would have gone about putting it out in the world the way I did. So I'm, yeah. I'm incredibly thankful for that for her. Yeah. It's w- one of the things that I hear from authors. I mean, aside from you know, having a good story and having the talent to write it is having somebody in your life at some point who encourages you to, to kind of do it. And for some people, it's, you know, the third grade teacher who notices something in their abilities um, and encourages them from a very young age. Um, you know, and, and in your case, it sounds like your, your wife um, was, was really, you know, who, who you needed to hear from and, and kind of give you the, the courage to, to be vulnerable because, you know, you're right. I mean, writing is, you know, there's a few things in life that are more vulnerable than, and, you know, putting your thoughts on, on a piece of paper on a screen and then sharing them with other people. I mean, that, that takes a tremendous amount of, you know, vulnerability if you're, if you're really being honest about, about the craft. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm fortunate, you know, in, in addition to my wife, I had a very, and it still do have very supportive parents. So my whole life, it was kind of, you want to do something, you're going to do it and you'll figure out a way to do it. And so I think not everyone has that support. Um, don't get me wrong. We all face our challenges and some things are harder than others, but I was always brought up. You work your tail off and you do things the right way. Just get it done. Be accountable to yourself. Sometimes it's great to put a goal out there. And, you know, one of the things about saying it out loud to my wife was all of a sudden there was this accountability it was real. It was out there in the world. It wasn't just percolating in my head. So I was fortunate um, for that to, to have happened for sure. What did, um, what did you study at UConn? I mean, obviously you're a lawyer, you know, by, by, by trade now, but what were you studying when you were up in stores? History and journalism. So, uh, you know, there, there were times I actually got into UConn as a business student. Um, and, you know, you, you go to that microeconomics class the first time and there's 150 or 200 people in the room. And I wasn't sure that was for me. Um, I thought I might go into history and uh, either be a professor or a, a teacher in high school. Um, and then, you know, I, I wasn't sure I wanted to do that, but I knew I loved writing. And so I was going to change again from history to journalism. And uh, my parents, again, um, I said they were, they, they were always been supportive, but they always made sure I was accountable too, right? So my, my dad, I remember vividly the conversation where he said, you can do this in addition to a history major, but you're not, you get four years, you're not going to be hopping from thing to thing. And so, um, again, I loved writing. So going into it and, and having the, I love the American history, World War II history, I really love that aspect of it. And then the journalism component, frankly, helped me for what I do now. 
you learned how to get to the point, be a, a concise writer, right? You, you, you have to get the reader's attention early on. And I think journalism school and writing for the daily campus and some small papers in Connecticut after that, um, it teaches you to do that so that you're not just dragging on You're economic with the words that you're putting on the page for sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, when that was going on, I also knew uh, I, I finished up at UConn in 2003, which was kind of an, uh, the boom of the early 2000s was kind of the boom of law school, right? If, if you weren't sure that you were going to be a liberal, what you're going to do with your liberal arts degree, people, you either went and got your MBA somewhere or you went and got your law degree. And so um, what I liked about a law degree is you could kind of do anything with that. You could be in the business world. Um, you could, you can go into teaching if you really wanted to, or you could become a practicing attorney, um, which yeah. is what I ended up doing. So, um, again, 16 plus years later, um, it was nice to get back to, um, um, you know, the book, what I liked about it was it, it reminded me that I had the muscle of being able to set a goal out there and accomplish it, quite frankly, um, I don't think it's unique to lawyers, but a lot of jobs, when you've been doing it for almost two decades, you get into a rhythm that's comfortable. And the book was, was, was I loved doing it, but it was a challenge for sure. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think the training at UConn for both the history and journalism, on top of what I've ended up doing as an attorney, 100% contributed to um, the book, not just the writing, quite frankly, but even the research that went into, you know, this is a historical fiction novel. But I didn't want it to be compute, you know, complete fiction. I, I wanted there to be some meat on the bones so that people could go and look. You know, there's parts of the book where I talk about a baseball game that the main character's at. Mm -hmm. I went and did the research for what the weather was on that date and what the box score was for the game he was allegedly at at that date. So yeah. a lot of my training went into that. Well, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the spark behind the novel. You mentioned your grandfather before. What what is your what's your what's the relationship between your your grandfather as in, in the story? So he's certainly the inspiration behind the story. Um, my grandfather was an amazing guy, uh, but incredibly quiet. So I did not have the full background of his story. I probably still don't until after he passed away. But he was an Italian immigrant. Um, he was born and raised in uh, Anagni, Italy, which is, I don't know if suburbs the right term, but really a village, probably 35, 40 minutes outside of Rome. His family, you know, he didn't want to leave Italy, but his family sent him to the States, you know, for economic reasons, because uh, in the early, you know, 1900s, Italy, there weren't as many jobs there. And um, America was thriving, obviously starting to boom at that point. But also that his family wanted to get him away from Mussolini because there was a lot of unrest, obviously, in, in Europe, given the uh, coming war. And so when he got to the States, he settled in. And within a couple of years of him actually finally getting comfortable here, he was actually drafted by the U.S. Army and had to go back to Europe to fight in World War II. And so that idea, the premise of that story always fascinated me my whole life. Um, I could not imagine my family sending me from the States to Canada or across to Europe. And then within a couple of years, having to enlist in an army and fight against my, my homeland. Right. Yeah. The, that, that That's an amazing part is, is that the fact that he had to fight against his, his people basically. Yep. And so his story is pretty impressive, actually. I mean, he, he did the North Africa and did fight against some Italian forces, but then he was part of uh, D-Day and then did Bastogne. He, he went that route. I took the story in a little bit different direction just for story purposes. I wanted to tie it back into the Italian mainland 
Um, and the book does have a lot more. The, the war part of the book is more on the uh, Italian war front, which quite frankly, I don't think there's enough um, discussion about that. We, we read all the time about, you know, the, the European front in France and what was happening in England, but we don't hear a lot about the North Africa into Sicily, into uh, Italy route. So um, I tried to do a nice blend where I think his story was kind of the skeleton that I definitely built the story around. But then once I got writing, it's, you know, the characters really took on lives of their own. And I was excited to see what was going to happen next. And the story just kind of evolved into something um, that I was really happy with at the end. Yeah, I mean, that's the key is, is even you getting kind of interested in what happens next, you know, because if you're not interested in what happens next, the reader uh, is probably less likely to be interested in it. Um, what did you learn about yourself as you were going through this process? So clearly you, you did a lot of writing you know, I would, I would call it nonfiction up into this point in time. Was this your first, I mean, have you ever tried a short story before, or was this really your first entrance into, into fiction writing? I, I think you, <laughs> some judges and, and opposing counsel may disagree that this was my first fictional <laughs> uh, storytelling, but um, I, I did do a lot of short story writing more in college, but um, that went away. And really how this evolved and where my challenge was, a few years ago, my, my wife's father passed away. And I remember being at the, um, the wake and her talking to some of his friends about these stories that she had never heard before and how she had said she wished she had heard more of these types of stories from her father. Um, and so when that happened, I have two young kids. I thought I'd start journaling so that they would see a little bit of what was happening in our lives. Um, and I found that to be hard. Um, you know, you get into the mundaneness of some days where you just you work all day and you don't want to come home and sit down and write that type of style writing. And so um, I thought this book was going to be something that I could leave my kids. Right. So what was challenging through it? I think by nature, I'm not the most patient person in the world. So although I knew where I wanted the story to go, Sometimes I'd want to force myself to write because I felt like I had to be writing. And there were days where writing was really easy, but I think I learned pretty early in the process that when it wasn't there in a given day, I didn't want to force anything necessarily. And I found that some of the best writing I did in the book was when I gave it a couple of days to percolate. You know, I'd write a paragraph just so I had something to start from but then let that sit for a couple of days and then go back to it. And it was amazing when I did that and I'd go run for, you know, an hour or something just to get my thoughts out of my head. That was probably the biggest challenge was making sure I didn't force things. Um, and then the other challenge I think was, I always thought that this was going to be very much an outline. And so before I actually started writing, I had outlined the entire book. And then as I started writing, I felt the story going in a different direction yep. than what my outline was. And having to say, I focus so much on putting this outline together, I have to stay with that and saying that's not where the story needs to go and kind of letting the story naturally evolve into what it turned into um, was a challenge, but certainly something that was necessary for the project. Yeah, and that's something that's that's key. I mean, you can and, and many authors, very successful ones will always outline, but but they don't let that you know, form handcuffs on them because, you know, you, you don't even know who your characters are when you, when you write your outline, you know, you haven't even learned about them yet. And, and, you know, your character development happens over time so that, you know, when you come to, you know, the outline where you think you're going left, but now the story has to go right. You've got to give yourself permission to, 
to make that change. Um, yep. So, but, but, but the outlining is, you know, and I've, I've heard it from so many people. It's like, it's, it's such a more efficient way to go about you know, helping you start off, you know, at least, at least even just start off the story. It, it definitely helped at least get some thoughts out. And there were definitely parts of the outline that I would incorporate back into the story. Um, but I, you know, I think, and it may be frankly from some of my, um, legal training, and you could probably hear it in this podcast, I kind of think best out loud, right? So, and, and I treat writing the same way. My style of writing, whether it was with the book, whether it's with a trial brief or, or something of that nature, I love just getting as much down on a piece of paper as possible. And then I'm a little bit uh, of a combination of present versus old school. I don't like editing on a computer. I love printing out whatever I've written and then getting a red pen and just completely hacking into it. Um, and it's amazing that even during that editing process, how much a story, a particular chapter or, or a scene that you're in can change. So um, I think, you know, you're right. Being flexible and being able to have a guide, but not be so rigid that you're tied to that and it, it handcuffs you in a way. Um, very important during the process for me, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you were, when you were done with it and you kind of went through, you know, all of your final edits, what was your next process? Did you, did you query it to agents? Did you? Um, attempt to do that and uh, go through that humbling process? I did not. Um, what I did, so I had a couple friends who are, um, they weren't with the big agencies, but I had a couple friends that do the hybrid publishing, helping out self-publishing, um, who I kind of used as beta readers as they were going through the process. Um, we had thought about, and we, I say we, um, my wife and I talked, you know, she was a partner throughout this process. So she was my first editor. Um, and then after I really hacked it up a few times, I knew that there were things, um, I'm confident in my writing, but I'm certainly, you know, writing from a first person perspective was completely different. Conversations on the page were different. I knew I needed help. And so I did, um, I had a friend who had a colleague that had a small uh, publishing group that did a lot of historical fiction type work. Um, and it was more of a self-publishing process where I worked with them as to using their professional editors and some of their marketing. But I wanted to make sure, um, you know, I guess a little bit what I left out before during the COVID process, when I started writing this, it was more of, I was 39 years old and I said, it would be great to have this out there when I turned 40. Yeah. And so I didn't want to wait for a big uh, publishing house. I wanted to make sure this got out there. Um, and so I thought the self-publishing route worked better for me. Um, and again, I worked with Halo Publishing that had a little bit more reach. They, they could get me into um, some of the retailers that I wanted to be involved with without going through the whole process of waiting for a larger publisher that I would love to say that they would have picked up this book and 100% would have put it on the shelves. But I knew that wasn't a guarantee if I went that yeah. route. And it was important for me to, to get it out there. Um, so that was the better route for me, for sure. Yeah. Um, so I uh, think just thinking about um, kind of having gone through this process, um, is there another book in you? Are you, are you thinking about, uh, you know, a follow-up? So there's 100% another book in me. Um, it's not going to be a follow-up to this particular book because I think this was something that was special for me, a story that I wanted to make sure that, again, it wasn't my grandfather's life, but it was certainly based on him. And it was important for me to get that out there. Um, 
you know, I was just talking to someone today who was telling me that their their son is going to um, college or, ma- or getting a master's degree. They're going to go to school in New York City. And so for me, I went to law school in New York City. And uh, being in your early 20s, uh, right after September 11th happened, living in New York City, there's a lot of really good stories uh, from the year, three years I had when I was there. I would like, I think, to, to put it out there, you know, at first, I don't want it to be a memoir. I have too many friends who I have too much respect for that I don't think all of those stories need to be um, documented. Um, but I, you know, part of what I liked with my legal career, what I thought I was going to start in the world was uh, I did work in the New York County District Attorney's Office when I was in law school, which is the Manhattan DA. What, you know, people see law and order. That's what I was doing when I was You're in working law for school. Jack McCoy. Exactly. So I think some of the stories I have between the work I was doing there in addition to some of the more social aspects of my life in New York, I think there is, I haven't decided whether it's going to be more mystery based, more crime based, more humor based or a combination, but that, you know, I was, I'm starting to outline things that stick in my mind from 20 years ago that I think would be, you could really easily build a book and some chapters around for sure. All right. Well, I've got some questions for you that I call the hot seat. Really not all that difficult questions are really meant to be fun. Um, but uh, the first one is, um, and I ask this, these questions of everybody just to try and see if I find any patterns. Uh, the first one is, what were some of your favorite TV shows when you were a kid? Uh, <laughs> you know, I was, and I've listened to your prior pod, so I knew this one was coming and I had to decide if I wanted to be honest or not. So I'm going to be honest. I loved Dawson's Creek when I was in high school. <laughs> Absolutely loved Dawson's Creek. Um, that was what James, James Vanderbeek was he James Vanderbeek, yep. uh, Katie Holmes, uh, Josh Jackson. Right. So I, and I was a big Josh Jackson fan from when he was on the mighty ducks. So, oh yeah, yeah. I, I love Dawson's Creek. It he was, was also uh, in a great movie called the skulls. Did you ever see that based? Uh, it's like a, a pretend Yale, right? He, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the skull and bone society. Yeah, yeah, Exactly. So that was great. Um, again, I'm a kid of the, uh, I'm the baby in my family. So in the eighties, I was watching a lot of growing pains and shows like that, which I, you know, the Seaver family was very much, you know, I, I it, it was, there were a lot of similarities with my family, quite frankly. And then I was a kid of TGIF for sure. So boy meets world and all those shows in the, in the early nineties. Yeah. So I'm just a little bit older than you. So I missed some of those early 90 ones, but growing pains. Absolutely. And I, I mean, if that was a reflection of your life, was your dad a therapist and your mom a reporter or no, that wasn't, it was just, no. So it's not exactly like that. Um, no, my dad was a professional and my mom was, um, she worked in a school, just the family dynamic. I, yeah. So I was, I'm the youngest of three. I had an older sister who was certainly the brains of the family. I had a, uh, a middle brother who's now the, the classic middle child, a uh, great guy, but has that bitterness humor in him sometimes where he could rub, you know, the typical middle child. And so we very, you know, very much fell in there. And then once they started to bring the younger kid in the end and the, and the show jumped the shark a little bit, that didn't. Uh, Leo, Leo DiCaprio. Yeah. They did that on the Brady Bunch too with cousin Oliver. It's right. like, I, I don't know why they do that. And then even in, um, this is, I know way too much about TV, but in different strokes, they brought in Sam, the little yep. uh, redheaded kid, uh, Dixie Carter's. I think it was played by Dixie Carter, her, her son. Um, so yeah, good growing pain. Show me that smile again. There we go. um all right so if we were uh following your around in your teenage years um and i'm assuming you 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 had a walkman you're not that much younger than me that you were had an mp3 player but 
what albums, cassettes, CDs would we find you listening to in your teenage years? Uh, pretty eclectic. So again, I'm the youngest. So my sister was a huge U2 Duran Duran person. So I'd have that stuff. My brother was a humongous Def Leppard and Pearl Jam fan, right? So uh, 10 and Verses are two of my favorite rock albums of all time. I was a huge Dave Matthews Band fan. But I also really loved, um, again, as a kid, it, grew, it was in high school in the 90s. I loved, you know, The Roots, DMX. Uh, there was definitely uh, a hip hop component, uh, Tribe Called Quest. There, I, I felt like I, I was, had a really interesting um, mix. And today I'll, I'll listen to Taylor Swift, right? So I, I, I like good music and I am open to many different genres. But I think the most played albums would probably be Crash by Dave Matthews Band for sure, and uh, and Verses by Pearl Jam. Yeah, I remember Ten came out right when I was moving into UConn. Um, so well, it came out before that, but I was moving in in the fall of '92, and my friend and I listened to it probably two or three times back to back on the drive up. Amazing, amazing, Such a great album. album. Uh, all right. So aside from writing, uh, what other activities make you happy? <sighs> I love cooking. Um, you know, a lot of my work, I love being in court, um, because you can advocate for clients, but a lot of the work you end up doing is, is you're in an office doing, answering emails, doing a lot of legal writing. Um, so whether it's cooking or some home projects, um, as I've gotten older, the nicer the house I've, I've bought the, the less work I'm doing in it, but I like making things with my hands because creating something out of nothing is not necessarily what my day-to-day -day job entails. So I do love uh, cooking big Italian meals. You know, that's part of that. That part of the story is in my book. I still remember being a kid having Christmas Eve dinners where it really is like the typical, the seven fishes, the whole deal. And that's all in the book. So um, that's a big component. You know, I follow my wife and, and I are basically uh, chaperones for our kids soccer teams now. So we, we do a lot of driving and enjoy watching that. And I am uh I say this in the nicest way possible. I'm an obnoxious New York Mets, but more so UConn Huskies alum. I am all in on, it could be field hockey. I go to a lot of women's soccer, game, soccer games, football, yeah. everything. Um, basketball, obviously. I'm pretty obnoxious about it, but it's my one vice. I don't gamble. I don't do drugs. UConn is my, is my real um, hobby. I guess is the best way. It was and a heartbreaking first round loss in the NCAA tournament. We're going in the right direction. I think uh, we've been really spoiled for a long time. And I, I like the direction of the program. I'm hoping, you know, as we talk now, um, I'm not sure when this will come out. Hopefully the women will be moving towards another title. Um, but I think that the university is going in the right direction with all of that, the athletics yeah. program. Yeah. I went to the game versus, um, Got the Big East game uh, was not Seton Hall. Um, who did we play in the first round of the Big East tournament? I can't even remember. Uh, it was because I blocked it out because the, the night after we lost to Villanova and I was. It not did happy. beat Seton Hall. It was in Seton the, Hall. Okay. Yep, in the quarters. I, yeah, I couldn't remember because um, I saw two games that day and they kind of blended together. <laughs> There's uh, nothing like the Big East tournament. I'm yeah. so happy that UConn's back in the Big East. That is oh, yeah, one of the yeah. greatest weeks of the year. That was a lot of fun. Um, okay, how about this one? Uh, how do you feel when you're looking at a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen uh, when you're about to write something? What, what kind of emotions do you experience? 
you know, I, I think it's a little scary and you're in kind of a, a nervous spot. Once I get my hands on the keyboard and I start typing, it usually takes me a paragraph, but once I get a paragraph out of me, I just want to keep going. So I, I get excited once that happens for sure. Yeah. Once, once, uh, once the train keeps starts rolling, I guess the, the trick is getting the train to, to start going down the tracks. Yeah. I think, you know, I, once you get going, it's, it's not a big deal for me. I think one of, and actually I had a question for you with this, with some of the books that you, you've been writing, you know, I know you have obviously um, with the uncorking series, you, you, you have this character, right? When, when you first wrote the first book, did you envision this turning into something that turned into multiple books? I didn't. So when I started on Quirking a Murder, I had uh, Jimmy Doubts and Farrah Graham. Um, now, Jimmy Doubts is based on my brother. That was actually his nickname in, uh, in college. Uh, so I have a twin brother. And um, I, I fell in love with that character. Like I gave him many of my twin brother's personality characteristics. Um, and I didn't, I didn't think it was going to be a series. But then I just fell in love with these two characters. I thought that there was more they had some more stories, more adventures in them. Um, and so that became a, a four book series, probably a five book series um, if I get my act together. Um, so no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't go into it thinking it was going to be a series, but it just kind of naturally went that way because the response to that first book was people really like those two characters. That's, and I got here. So I, I've, I've got my, oh, my oh copy look at this, you. So oh my gosh. I came prepared. Um, but, so, but do you think you have the George R. R. Martin syndrome? Or are you, you going to get that last book out of you or? Oh no. Yeah. They, they'll, they'll be, I've, I've already noodling on it. The problem is I have, um, there's a, there's a piece of nonfiction I need to write, um, that, uh, that I promised myself I would. Um, so I need to, I need to pay a little bit of attention to that. Um, and that's going to take me at least, I mean, probably an 18 month project. Um, so we'll see, we'll see, we, you know, Jimmy and Farrah, they're, they're doing okay right now. They're on vacation. They're on vacation. They're, they're having a good life. That's great. <laughs> um, any, any lessons you feel like you learned the hard way about, you know, writing and publishing? I, you know, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd call it a lesson. I think I'm, I'm glad it's so unnerving when you first let people know this is happening, right? So the first time I let any, anyone in my world other than my wife know this was happening, including my, my family, was I, when I finished editing the manuscript and was ready to hand it in to the professional editor, I kind of threw out on social media just the stack of what that, that was, right? <laughs> and I wasn't sure what the response was going to be. Thankfully, I had you know really great support and people really have enjoyed the book. Um, I'm proud that I was willing to put myself out there. I think a lot of what we do in this world, and it's not just writing, it's everything in this world. I think we waste so much time and energy worrying, one, what other people are going to think, but two, the kind of the buildup. Instead of just saying, you know what, this is who I am, this is what I want, and getting it out there, I'm glad I saw that through. Because I, I think, you know, people say there's a book in everybody. I think there's a lot of books in everybody. You just have to be willing to spend the time. There is a, it is a lot of time. I spent a lot of, you know, I've, again, I've got a wife and kids. There was a lot of nine at night till one in the morning writing sessions because that was when I had free time. Yeah. And um, I don't miss falling asleep at two o'clock and want, you know, cause you wanted to keep writing. You had more to say, but it was two o'clock in the morning and you had to work the next day. Um, but I, you know, at the end of the day, I'm proud. I saw it through and was willing to let other people into this world because it was something I wasn't sure when I started, 
I had an idea where I wanted to start the book. I had an idea where I wanted the book to end. I had, you know, Eddie Vedder's the in-between is mine, right? I didn't know what was going to happen in there. And uh, I'm excited with what came out of it and what people's response has been so far. All right. Last one up. This one is the one that uh, some people have a hard time with, but uh, I call it the Brad Paisley letter to me question. We're uh, basically ripping off his song, Letter to Me, where you could write a letter to your younger self and give yourself some reassuring words or advice. Uh, if you could do that and uh, send that through the magical mail, um, what are some things you might tell a younger Matthew Necci? You know, <laughs> I, I've been lucky in that Again, there's, there's really two things that have stood out for me. One is something that it was just, it was my, my family's um, kind of mantra was help who you can, when you can, how you can. And so I've tried to, my adult life, take that, whether it's helping do some work in the nonprofit world or trying to really focus my career and going towards serving others. I think that's something that's coming. And I think, um, that's something I knew I wanted. But again, until you, you, you live a life, I'm 40, I still feel like I'm my parents kid, I don't really think of myself as an adult yet. But, you know, sending back, see it through that that actually works out really well. Um, and then, you know, something my wife and I, we have this, um, this uh, phrase framed in our house that just says, work hard and be good to people, because we want our kids to see that when they go outside every day. And I, I have found again, and I, I'm hoping I knew this when I was younger, but in case I didn't, I would certainly say this. If you work really hard, whether it's in relationships, your work, your hobbies, your passions, it doesn't mean you can't be good to people just because you're trying to do something for yourself. So make sure whatever you do, you work hard and you treat people really well. I find that things tend to work out for people that follow that path. Yeah, it's a quote Bill and Ted, or to paraphrase, be excellent to each other. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, so, um, Matthew, where can people purchase the road will someday bend? So it is available on Amazon. It's available on Barnes and Noble, Goodreads, all those online retailers, um, in Connecticut, there have been some smaller, uh, bookshops in Glastonbury and Madison that have been carrying the book, which has been really great. Um, there's a couple <laughs> there's, uh, I'm told there's a couple spots actually in Italy that have been carrying the book, which is pretty, uh, cool to see, but, the quickest way to get it for sure in all formats is, is through Amazon or Barnes and Noble. All right, there you go. And then if people wanted to follow you on social media, uh, throw out some of your socials or a website if you have one. Yeah, so Yukon Netch, uh, U-C-O-N-N-N-E-T-C-H. I am on Twitter all the time talking about all things Yukon, Hartford, New York Mets. Um, it's tough to, <laughs> I haven't talked about the Oscars last night yet. Cause I'm not even <laughs> sure what to talk about. Um, I'm still processing it. Really, it's like, what do you say? Um, I'm still not sure what to say other than Chris rock. Um, I won't comment on the joke, but his response after the fact about as professional as he could have been. So good yeah. for him on that. Um, but you Netch on Twitter and Instagram are really where you'll find me online. There it is. All right. Matthew Netchy, thank you so much for uh, letting me uncork your story. Thanks, Mike.